What is an icon? An idea we all grasp in our own way. That first thing that springs to mind when a subject crosses our attention. In the Maritimes, these are the people. Humble folk or famed individuals alike, our culture is built on their extraordinary stories. We're here to dive deeper into their lives, bringing new insight to you. This is Maritime Icons. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Maritime Icons, a brand new podcast. I'm your host, Ben Holmes. And I'm Nate Brown. We've partnered together to bring you new stories about iconic people from the Maritimes. Nate, this is our first episode of Maritime Icons, and I'm very excited. I'm very excited too, Ben Holmes, because joining us today, we will have Daryl Dexter, the first NDP Premier in Atlantic Canada, and I would say that's pretty iconic. Oh, it's iconic. And also... A majority government in 2009 in Nova Scotia, an NDP leader who got a majority government. It's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say so. It's historic, and that's why we are going to have him as our first guest on the show. He is iconic to NDP leaders, of course, in Atlantic Canada. And I just want to kind of get his point of view on if he thinks he's an icon. He's at a reflection period after his run in office, so he should have kind of a new view on his uh, former success. Yeah, you're right. It's almost been 10 years, and uh, he's had a lot of time to reflect on his time in office and, and his life. And let's just talk about a little bit about the show itself, the, the podcast itself. Maritime Icons is really all about iconic people in the sense that they could be they could be famous, but they also could be just common people that you might have just, you know, legendary people. You know what I mean? That's right. An icon is just someone attached to an idea. It's an iconic person, and that can mean many different things, not necessarily famous. So on this show, we're going to bring you people that you should know. They're famous people, and we're going to bring you new details about their life, but also people that kind of fly under the radar but are just as important. That's true, Nate, and I think we're going to have a really great mixture of people on the podcast who kind of will fit into both of those categories. And the thing about Daryl is... As a premier, you know, he has an image, but I don't think most people know how easygoing it is. So he's been described as, you know, a very humble man, a very easy to talk to guy, just someone that you want to just spin stories with, per se. So that we're going to have a side of him that I don't think most people have seen. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, no, he's after doing research about his life, his early life. It's going to be really, really incredible to talk to him about um, growing up in rural Nova Scotia. We both grew up in rural Nova Scotia, and it's going to be cool to see how he you know went down a path that led him to become premier of this province now there is another side of him that a lot of people in the province you know it's he's one of those people that i think people either really respect as a leader and really don't respect as a leader i think that you'll see that with any leader but i think that he especially was such a progressive leader in nova scotia that he did make a lot of head spin if you will i'd say his perception is definitely divided just like any leader but he especially kind of personifies that because you know of course being an ndp leader to start with is very different and his time in office was short but a lot of things happen so a lot of people have a lot of opinions about daryl dexter for sure that lasts today like uh talking to people just in everyday life they, they have strong opinions either one way or the other about him. And it's been almost 10 years, which is incredible. He will go down in history uh, as one of the most influential premiers in Nova Scotia, for sure. 
I'd agree with that. And kind of personification of the NDP in Atlantic Canada, which has a strong history, and he's right there in that history as well. For sure. I really want to talk to him. We're in the middle of a pandemic right now. I really want to talk to him about how he thinks his government would have handled this pandemic or if if he would have handled it in a different way. Um, I'm sure he might not even be able to answer that because it's such a strange time we're living in right now. But he also, his job now, he travels a lot. He sees a lot of uh, other provinces in Canada and he sees them politically. So I'm wondering, do you think any other provinces are making a better job or doing a better job taking care of COVID-19? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I think a politician is one of the best brains to pick on this because I don't know how you can't think about it just very analytically from a politician standpoint. And, you know, it's kind of something that you have to deal with, of course, if you're in office. So I want to just hear what he would do because you can't avoid, you know, COVID-19. It is just overbearing. So there's a lot to be done and he might have different opinions on what's been done. And that's going to be interesting to see. Yeah. Um, I think it was a strange time politically in the early 2000s leading up to 2013, 2011, 2012. It was a strange time because the NDPs in the country, federally and provincially, especially in Nova Scotia, were doing so extremely well. And I wonder, I've really wondered why that was, because for years it's always been conservative, liberal, conservative, liberal, back and forth and back and forth every four years. So I wonder, I want to get his take on what was the province, you know, what was their state of mind? Did they want just something completely different? Did they, are they more progressive after? from from years of from years of having this same two parties over and over again i i want i really want to talk to him about that as well well yeah because that kind of stopped the flip-flopping on the federal and the provincial level because at the federal level you had jack layton ndps forming the opposition you know for the first time since back in long time long time and and then provincially you have an actual ndp government forming in atlanta canada so this wave kind of came across canada altogether and daryl's gonna have a unique perspective on that so that's gonna be really interesting to see what the viewpoint was why he thinks people needed that change and in the four years be- before he won the election in 2009 he made huge gains he didn't win the premiership yet but he made huge games gains in uh being the opposition he was an opposition uh, party for um, uh, the conservatives, the PCs in Nova Scotia, and the liberals in Nova Scotia as well. So there was there was some shifting there for sure, and it's it's also really cool to think of maybe possibly that happening again. Who knows if that will happen again? Uh, I'd like to talk to him more about that. Does he think an NDP government will form in Nova Scotia again? Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. Exactly, and you know that's one thing to note is how fast that NDP movement happened because just forming even the opposition at the provincial level was a big deal. He worked very well as an opposition leader. I think he will even say that his ability to get things done um, and work with um, the conservative government at the time was, it might have won him the next election, to be honest, because seeing a capable leader that could even work with others, I think, resonated with a lot of people. The best thing we can do is to answer these questions straight from the source. So I'm very excited to talk to Daryl. I think we might even get more than we expect because he has some stories to tell. So we're going to have questions for him, but I think 
what he's going to bring is really just his personal experience. And that's going to be, I think, very moving to the viewers. Daryl Dexter is on the phone with us today. Uh, He's a lawyer, former journalist, and the 27th Premier of Nova Scotia. He's also the only NDP Premier in Nova Scotia and Atlantic Canadian history after winning a majority government in 2009. Mr. Premier, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today. It's my pleasure, although I will have to amend what you said just a little bit. Uh, Not many people know this. I was the first uh, NDP Premier of Nova Scotia, but the first NDP Premier from Nova Scotia was actually uh, Alan Blakeney, who was the Premier of Saskatchewan, but came from Bridgewater. Oh, wow. Really? Did not know that. So that's some good history there. Already learning something. Thank you, Mr. Dexter. No, Alan was a friend of mine, and he, he often... Uh, vacationed in Nova Scotia, and during the summer, I would go up uh, up to the South Shore and uh, and sat with them, and uh, yeah, and talk about the affairs of the world. So first off, I just want to thank you again so much for taking the time today. Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic, of course. We're speaking with you over the phone. How are you and your family doing during COVID nineteen? Oh, we're we're fine. Uh, my my son is a university student at. Uh, at Dalhousie, so he uh, lives uh, over in Halifax, and my wife and I are doing what I think uh, most Nova Scotians are doing, which is uh, staying home, working in our backyards, making the once-a-week uh, trip to uh, the grocery store. Although now that the golf courses have uh, opened up, I am looking forward to uh, getting out and getting some exercise. Are you are you a golfer? Well, I, I've got golf clubs. <laughs> That's a golfer, right? Yeah. Um, Strange times, for sure. And I want to talk more about COVID-19 in a little while. First off, though, let's go back to um, your your childhood, you growing up in Queens County. Tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in rural Nova Scotia. Well, it was a great great place to grow up. Uh, I had actually kind of an interesting childhood because my my dad was a sheet metal worker and he worked um, in the shipyards in Halifax. And so there was a period of my life from grade two to about grade eight, where we actually lived in the north end of Halifax, and we would be there from um, uh, from the opening of school in September until the end of June, and then we would go back to Milton, a little town in Queens County, for the summer. So I, I, I kind of had both experiences. I kind of grew up partly in uh, Halifax and partly in Queens County, um, and this this stemmed from the fact that my dad worked the, the shipyards and my and he had been away uh, over the, the course of the war, of course, and and uh, my mother um, was determined that she wasn't going to be living apart from him for long periods of time. So we went in kind of for the school year, lived on a Greco Street in Halifax, and came back for the summer. So it was an interesting childhood because I, I kind of played uh, hockey in Halifax but played baseball in Queens County. Different, you know, different, I had kind of two sets of friends. I had kind of winter friends and summer friends. And then uh, my grandfather died when I was in grade eight and we moved back to Milton full time uh, just before I started high school. Um, and uh, I think it's one of those things that, you know, wherever you went to high school is kind of where you're from because those are very formative years. Um, and of course, I have a tremendous number of friends who still live in uh, Milton and Liverpool and the surrounding areas. And when I get a chance to go back and see them, I always, uh, I always enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned your dad. He was a he was a veteran in World War II. Is that right? 
Yes, that's right. He, he and his brother uh, went overseas from a convoy out of Halifax Harbor, and I remember him telling me that uh, that uh, the, the British Navy had sent over these two large destroyers, the Repulse and the Renown. And he said he remembered leaving on the convoy, going out of, across the Atlantic, and of course, once they got kind of to the midpoint of the Atlantic, the the German U-boats started to sink ships, uh, and he said, when he left, he said, and he looked out across the ocean, there were all these ships, he said, you know, you felt invincible. And uh, by by three quarters of the way over, you realized you weren't invincible, and that there was a real uh, a real enemy, and that they were doing their best to, to stop the war effort. Oh my God. I cannot I cannot even imagine the stories he probably had of being in he was in the navy right in the in the no he was uh, he was actually in the infantry okay. and kind of an interesting story as well i mean he like i said they, he went over to convoy um and um while he was while they were preparing for uh the invasion of europe because they were in england for quite a long time he went over in 41 and my my father having grown up in queens county was uh, was essentially a, a kid who grew up in the woods he grew up with his his father with a with a buck saw you know cutting wood you for all intents and purposes he'd be what you'd call a lumberjack they needed people who were used to working in the woods who were able to go to locations around england and who essentially could fashion you know bridges and corduroy roads out of available materials so they went through the ranks of of the infantry and asked if there were people who were um, uh, you know, used to working in the woods, and my father said that he was. So they took him out of that uh, infantry regiment and put him into what was essentially an engineering regiment that was kind of mobile and moved around England and Scotland, uh, repairing bridges and, and roads and those sorts of things uh, that uh, were damaged as a result of, uh, of bombing. And he was actually uh, wounded uh, one night, uh, standing guard on a on a manufacturing facility uh, when it was bombed and a piece of debris, not actually from the bomb, but from the materials that were being manufactured, went through his leg. And uh, and uh, that was always one, kind of one of the interesting stories because he said that um, in those days when they put you in the hospital, they would put your rifle at the end of your bed uh, because they were sure that the that the Germans were going to um, uh, parachute into Britain at any time. So everybody, you know, just because you're in the hospital didn't mean you weren't a soldier. And he said there were so many shell-shocked uh, vets in the, in the hospital at the time that whenever bombing would start, many of them would grab their rifles and start shooting. And he, and he said it was such a dangerous place to be that after a, uh, after a few days and he was able to walk uh, he signed himself out and went back to his regiment <laughs> a safer place holy now were your parents i know still this time uh during this time some people are really really quiet about their political views don't really like to talk about it were they um did was politics talked about in your home no they were completely apolitical i, I would say that they would be kind of your classic swing voter now my my grandparents were you know died in the wolf conservatives but mm -hmm. uh, but they were they uh, certainly we never was n never anything that was ever talked about in my household 
Uh, my dad uh, was active in his union, um, but um, you know, out of you know, out of I guess as everybody was. I mean, he uh, he I think he worked on the um, negotiating committee at one point in time, but it, he was he was not a, a a partisan or an ideologue of any kind. He was a very practical practical man. He had you know very the the very uh, kind of simple priorities. It was about taking care of his family. It was about having a job. It was about being productive. You know, it was it was you know pretty pretty straightforward. My and my mom was a very similar in temperament. I mean, literally, you know, the kind of rural Nova Scotia uh, individual. We you know we we uh, had a small in Milton. There was a small mixed farm. Um, you know, my my mother. Uh, you know, pickled in the fall, and was an excellent baker, and you know, she was a jack of all trades. That's that's interesting. Me and Nathaniel are both from Shelburne County, and uh, and that's a lot of our childhood. I'm sure, like I'm sure Nathaniel would agree. That's that uh, brings back a lot of memories for sure. Well, I know Shelburne, of course, very very well. As I, I went to Liverpool Regional High School, we played uh, basketball against Shelburne. We played baseball. We played soccer. We played in the old Shelburne High School. Now, you'd be too young to remember that, but uh, the old Shelburne High School, I'll never forget it because uh, the basketball floor had dead spots in it, and um, the Shelburne team knew exactly where they were, and they would direct you toward the dead spots because they knew that was the point at which they could steal the ball. Very clever. A home court advantage of the time. Yes, I remember that school in it. Um, both Ben and my um, grandparents were um, involved in education in Shelburne, so I'm sure they could tell us more about that. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, Daryl, is you brought up your mom. Um, I know that she was a very multi-talented woman. Can you tell me more about that? Because, you know, just reading up about her, she was described as, um, you know, a baker, a chef, a nurse, an employment counselor, and an educator. So can you just tell me more about um, your view of your mother growing up? She had no formal training in any of those things. But she was just always uh, focused on doing whatever it was that was necessary that people needed. So if they needed to be taken care of, for example, my grandmother, at the end of her life, she was bedridden. She had a colostomy bag. She was being visited kind of once a week uh, by the VON, um, who would teach my mother, you know, how to train, change dressings and things like that, which she did. In those days, you know, you, there was no long-term care facility. You, people stayed at home. When we were growing up and, you know, we were kind of lost and directionless, she was the most positive person that you could possibly, you know, she, she believed that all of her kids had great potential and that we just had to find it. And so she was encouraging. Um, she, she understood the strengths of all of us. And she played to those strengths. And I'll give you just a little example. When I, I was a reader, I read everything. And when I was a kid, one Christmas, when everybody else in the family were getting, you know, my brother was getting a Buntline special, which is a, a kind of toy gun, or, or whatever they, you know, whatever they wanted. What I got for Christmas was a set of the Art Link Letter Reading Library. It was because she knew that even though I, I probably would have preferred to have these toys, that in the long run over the year, I would enjoy 
reading those more than I would any anything else she could bought, uh, have bought me. And she was right. So just to follow off that, you know, your penchant for reading, um, as most great readers do, they have some books that influenced them greatly. Did you have anything that you can recall reading as you grew up that really kind of had an impact on you? Well, I think you kind of collect um, things over your life. Um, not something I read really early in my life, but one of the books that kind of underlined things for me was a book called by a guy by the name of um, uh, Robert Tressel. Um, it was called The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist. Um, and it used to actually be on university reading lists many years ago. And um, the kind of tenant of the story, it's a, it's a wonderful, it was written in 19, I think it was 1911, it was written by, it's about a house painter, which doesn't sound like a gripping tale, uh, but he was a house painter, so he wrote about what he knew about, and the essence of the story was that ordinary working people were philanthropists because only a philanthropist would work all their lives and the majority of the benefit of that work would go to somebody else. Interesting. That sounds resonates very much with your story. I just want to ask you, did you kind of see yourself in that same vein coming from a working class family? Did that influence you to kind of get into politics as a way to bring a philanthropic view from a viewpoint that's kind of unrepresented usually in politics? Yeah, I, I, I was, uh, my interest in, in kind of the way the world works politically um, started out of, you know, very early, I can say, partly in reading. As soon as I went to university, I got involved in student politics, and I served on the executive of the National Union of Students, and um, I remember a, a reporter one time asked me a question about, uh, you know, what... Um, if I had to name a character in a, in a book that typified who I was, who would it be? And I said it would be, the I think his name was Boxer, the horse in Animal Farm. Because his every time something went wrong, what he would say is, I must work harder. He, he, uh, he never um, put the responsibility on somebody else. So... I, I, I always, uh, I, I looked at that, uh, you know, kind of in my own life, it wasn't about asking somebody else to take responsibility for things, it was about taking uh, your own responsibility for um, not only your, your personal circumstances, but the circumstances of the world you live in. For sure, no doubt about it. Um, you mentioned your high school years um, earlier. I want to kind of go back to that. So in the in your high school years, you, you started to really kind of get an interest or started to think about politics more. Can you tell us a little bit about how that, that happened? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think it's all it all comes down to um, the fact that I was uh, a reader. Even when I was in high school, I was one of these kids that got up in the morning and read the newspaper. And there weren't many of those, really, in my high school, right? But mm -hmm. I, that's something I did. I, I read the newspaper. I um, it wasn't, I think, after my first year of university when I first started getting magazine subscriptions, but I got, you know, Newsweek and, you know, uh, McLean's and other kind of topical magazines. I just, I read about the world around me 
all the time. And of course, in high school is when you start to develop um, those uh, those kinds of habits. And you know, I think the teachers at Liverpool Regional at the time were, you know, kind of in, intrigued. I spent a lot of time. I mean, I was a very active, outgoing kid, and I don't want to give the impression that I was in any way an A student. Um, going from from high school into a higher education, you went to university. Were your parents? Did your parents? Uh, they were working class people. Did they push you to go to university? Um, I wouldn't say they pushed me. They were very happy that I was going to university. Uh, my dad and mom both had uh, grade eight. My dad went back um after well actually I, I guess i would have been in grade five or six but he went to the nova scotia institute of technology uh, which at that time was up on lead street in halifax which was not that far from where we lived um, and he went there to um com- to to get his certification because he was a sheet metal worker um so so they were very happy that i went to university and and my dad kind of had a lot of these little um, expressions or uh, mottos that he would use. What he would say about education is um, anything you put in your head, nobody can ever take from you. So, you know, that was his kind of view of education, that it was never waste. One of those things that you carried with you wherever you went. Your dad sounds like a very smart man. Yeah, he was wise. He, you know, he because he had this lifetime of uh, of experiences. And I used to think about this all the time, especially when I was younger. I would think, you know, what would my at, at my dad's age, what would have he been doing? And of course, there was a period of that time when he would have been in England during the war. Um, I mean, you know, as soon as he was big enough, um, he went to work in the woods with uh, with uh, his dad. So, you know, the. the my life, uh, in comparison, was lived in relative comfort and, and you know, without uh, the kinds of preoccupations he would have had. Right. Different time, for sure. Now, you went to university, and you and what's really interesting is you have a journalism degree, and is that what first attracted you? Is that what you wanted to do, uh, be, be a journalist? No, it, it was, uh, <laughs> I would say I took the, uh, the academic uh, a path less followed, right? I, uh, when I first went, uh, I, I really had no idea. Uh, it, you know, I, I, I had actually gone to university before my 18th birthday, and uh, now just barely before. Uh, I think I turned 18 after I was there a week or so. But I was pretty young. Uh, I went to, to, to Dalhousie, but really had no kind of focus uh, whatsoever and the 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 uh, kind of midway through the first year I really believed that I would be coming back I uh, you know all my friends were still in Liverpool um, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying this I was a little bit homesick you know I uh, I just didn't think that it was going to be for me but I, uh, I had an interesting experience in between my first and second year and and and, you know, I kind of collect these things up, but I, I was working at uh, a place called Teleglobe Canada, which was down in Mill Village. There was, a, there was an Earth satellite station uh, in Mill Village, and I went to work there, me and a, a friend of mine who still lives in Liverpool, and it was a great summer job because at the time, I think the minimum wage would have been a $1.35, and um, 
when you went to work at Teleglobe Canada, uh, you got, I think it was five twenty-five an hour because they had to pay you the, the union wage. Me and the other guy who worked there, we considered this to be just the cat's meow. And um, uh, so they hired the, the two of us. And the interesting thing about it was they, you know, it, it was just laboring work. And they were building, they were essentially digging a cable ditch and clearing out brush. And, uh, and I was convinced, because this was such a good paying job, that if I worked hard enough during the summer, maybe they'd keep me on. And I was out uh, digging this ditch, and I had this one of those AIDS and ADZ, uh, and I was digging the ground with it, and I was just really coming onto it. And the guy, uh, Stan Rafuse from Mill Village, was watching me, and he said, "You know, you, you keep it up like that, and you're not going to have any energy to go on." And I, and I said, "Well, you know, I want to get it. I want to get it done." And he said, "Look," he said, I, "I've been working here for 20 years." Every day I come here, the ditch is still here. For some reason, that resonated with me. Like, I went home at night, and I thought, you know, I couldn't, even at 5.25 an hour, I couldn't spend 20 years digging a ditch. And it was, that was kind of a crystallizing moment when I realized, okay, well, I really got to go back to university. I got to get my act together. I got to, you know, start, you know, figuring this stuff out. Uh, I, I did an arts degree uh, in, in history, um, I did a bunch of education credits. Uh, I eventually, uh, I think, I can't even remember the order of my degrees now. I think I may have actually ended up getting my education degree after my journalism degree, even though I did like five-sevenths of the degree before I went to, to over to King's School of Journalism. So you did a lot of university, and then you decided to kind of go in more of a different direction into the Canadian Navy. Yeah, uh, when I got out of university, there was really no work uh, kind of anywhere. So I had worked for a little while over at CFDR Radio in uh, in Dartmouth. And um, uh, during that time, I'd run into a guy who was a public affairs officer uh, working for the uh, Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, they had tremendous resources, all kinds of resources. They, they, um, they were reasonably well paid for uh, that that time and you know you were an officer and um, so I thought uh, well that would be something I would like to do so I went down to the recruiting office and said look I'd like to be a public affairs officer and they said well what you'd have to do is go in and get a trade first and then transfer over into public affairs and I said uh, okay well you know um, you know what what's available and they said well you know we're looking for uh, navigators and uh, line officers they're they're called mars officers maritime surface and subsurface and i thought well uh, it can't hurt i'll learn something and you know prepare myself to remuster into public affairs uh so that's uh, how i ended up joining the navy and and i have to say it was a good experience for me it it uh, was another one of those things that gave me Focus. I went through the Canadian Forces Officer Candidate School at uh, CFB Chilliwack. Um, you know, um, it, it, that, that kind of training at that time, it either it either made you or it broke you. It was, I don't know what I can't. I don't know exactly what training is like uh, nowadays, but in those days it was still pretty rugged. And um, 
and it was very good for me. It, it, uh, it taught me a lot of self-discipline and focus, and and there just came a point in the even in the naval training where I thought, well, you know something. I thought, well, I'd always told myself I was going to go to law school, and uh, if I don't do it soon, I'm going to be too old to go. Um, so after a couple of years in the Navy, I uh, um, wrote the law school admission exams. I asked to be uh, to be released, and uh, I went to uh, Dalhousie. And you became a lawyer. You practiced law. And how long did you practice law until you, in before you you entered public office? Uh, it was a it was ten years. What made you want to go into public office? Was it your your work with with um, practicing law? You you saw people, probably people's um, situations. You probably wanted to help people. Is that what kind of went you put you toward public office? Well, I never. I, I mean, I never stopped being interested in politics or political life. I mean, I. I, as I said, I was on the executive and actually students back when I was in university. I worked for, um, on Alexa McDonough's campaign in 79, I think it was, um, which was the Joe Clark minority government when that fell. Uh, I, um, got involved in the party and started to, to, you know, fill various roles in the, in the party throughout uh, that time. Um, when I graduated from uh, law school, I threw myself into the community that I lived in. I was the president of what was known as the Downtown Dartmouth Development Corporation, uh, and I had served on their board for a couple of years. And then um, it seemed very natural from there to run for city council. So I was elected to city council in Dartmouth, and I served on the Dartmouth City Council. And at that point, uh, Alexa left the leadership of the Nova Scotia New Democratic Party to run uh, for the federal leadership. Um, so at that point, I ran Robert Chisholm's leadership campaign for the provincial party, which, of course, he was su- successful in in capturing. And... After that, the government of the day amalgamated the city, uh, Dartmouth and Halifax. Uh, so my council's job disappeared with the amalgamation, and Robert came to me and said, you're not on council anymore, so you have no reason not to run um, uh, provincially. I said, well, the, there's, a, there's a, already somebody running for the nomination in the area that I live in, and I'm not going to run against him because, you know, he worked to get me elected to council, and I'm not going to run against him now. I'm not going to repay his kindness by trying to take the nomination from him. And he said, well, run in another riding. But I said, okay, well, look, it's like this. I will run in um, the Dartmouth Coal Harbor riding. My sister lives there, and at that time my parents were actually staying with her, so they're there. Um, so I have a connection to the riding. I can run there. And if that lifts the ticket a little bit for other candidates, that'll be great. And I was running against, I knew that I was running against the Minister of Justice. You know, I just didn't think that there was, you know, uh, a, a, a real opportunity to win. Because once I got out on the campaign trail, I just, you know, I worked it uh, as hard as I possibly could. And there was a, an opportunity there. And I was fortunate enough to be successful. Wow. So... Just talking about those beginnings in politics and up through, your connection to Alexa McDonough I find very interesting because she can certainly be pointed to as playing a major role in growing the NDP in Atlantic Canada. So what was your relationship 
um, with Alexa. What's the extent of that? Well, she was the person who brought me into the party. Um, literally, I met her at her office uh, during, I think, the 70... There were two elections there back-to-back, and so long I can't remember, but uh, I used to always joke that, uh, you know, kind of once Alexa, Alexa captured you, you were never going to get away from her. So um, I, I went in and started doing some work for her then and then went to work. And, you know, kind of joined what was then a very small group of people who called themselves the YND, the Young New Democrats at the time. And, um, yeah, just I worked on campaigns and got involved in my riding association, sometimes act as her driver. I'd drive her to events. And, you know, I, it was like, you know, sitting in the sidecar of a motorcycle, right? She was driving and I was just observing what was going on. And, uh, and it served me. Uh, it was just invaluable experience. And those those people really, in 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 the long run, helped you get to where you were, like to to the to be premier, really, didn't they? I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by this absolutely amazing group of people who supported me, and I and I might just say that you know at that time many of them who I learned so much from were simple were were women. Right. You know, there was Alexa McDonough, there was there was Joanne Lamy, there was Maureen Vine, there was Maureen McDonald, there was just the list just, you know, kind of went on and on and on. We had all these uh, Mary Jane White, we had these am- amazing strong women who were, you know, the, the 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 big part of growing the party uh in uh, in Nova Scotia. And and you mentioned um you were on council on Dartmouth Council, and then, really, in a span of almost ten years, you're the leader of the NDP party for Nova Scotia. Yeah, uh, well, it uh, it was a set of circumstances. Robert became the leader. Mm-hmm. He led us through the '98 uh, campaign, and in '98 um, we went to 19 seats. It was a remarkable event. I think the high, the high watermark for us before that had been four. So, um, and there was a real question at that point, you know, whether or not the you know, conservatives would support us and that we would become the government, which, of course, did not happen. And then in 99, um, because it was a minority, the government fell, and the conservatives actually went from third place to first place. Liberals fell even further, so we were still the official opposition. Uh, I was one of those people who managed of the 19, so the, the, I guess we would have lost six or seven seats in that election, but I was one of the ones who uh, survived um, that campaign. I, I, at that point, wasn't really sure I was going to stay a lot longer. I, um, I guess I'm kind of getting ahead of the story, but Robert was resigned, announced that he was resigning. I think that was in 2000. Uh, there was a, a leadership convention, which I did not take part in. Um, Helen McDonald was uh, elected leader, but she left pretty early after after that. Um, and I was, because I, uh, I had not participated in some of the things that were happening at the time and, and, and honestly was thinking about going back to practicing law, people in the party came to me and said, like, you know, would you become, would you take on the job of being interim leader? And at that point, I realized that I had to kind of really kind of sit down and think about this, and I did. 
And I said, well, I still don't know that I would want to be the leader permanently, but if I'm going to be interim leader, I don't want to be ruled out. I thought, well, you know, maybe uh, maybe this is the, the, the job I should be doing. I ran in that leadership convention and, and was fortunate enough to, to win. And, yeah, I was going to say, the elections before uh, the 2009 win, you made great gains, as you said. Uh, you were opposition to uh, the Conservatives and the Liberals. And then in 2009, you make history, winning the election, majority government, NDP government, and you're the first NDP premier of Nova Scotia. And uh, first off, how did that feel? How does it feel to be, you know told that you are your your premier yeah it's uh it's, it's hard to put into words because you know uh, you know elections are uncertain things right i mean you and i and i remember the very first one i remember the 2003 one you know kind of uh going out on my back deck the night the election was called and just sitting out there um on my own on the steps thinking to myself i have no idea where this is going we've done all this work we've done all this preparation we have, you know, put together this team of candidates. We've done all this, but I don't know what the result is going to be at the end. We made progress after 2003, and we made progress after 2006. And I always thought it was funny because in 2009, when we won, people said, oh, well, this is a shock, this is so surprising, you know, all of that. And I kept thinking, well, really? Like, because if you think it's a surprise, you just haven't been paying attention. Traditionally, Nova Scotia was a really like either they put in BC, as I said earlier, or a liberal BC, liberal back and forth and back and forth. But in 2009, it was it was a different time, wasn't it? It had been leading up to an NDP government. Why do you think that people started to were they being more progressive? Do you think were they um, tired of the the two the two parties going back and forth? What what do you think was the reason behind that? Well, I, I've always said this, and I still I believe it to this day, which was that the values of the party are actually the values of Nova Scotians, and and uh, the the problem was that Nova Scotians didn't know that, right? And our job was to communicate, you know, uh, a program that reflected our values, and that Nova Scotians would see themselves in that. And I think it's a it's a it's not a, a an unknown thing for for political parties. They often shape their politics to reflect who they are, rather than to reflect who the people of the province are. Um, and uh, I just think that's a, a, a dreadful mistake. People get so caught up in the internal stuff of the of a party that that you know kind of captures their approach. And, you know, in political life, you just, you got to realize, like, it's, it's not about you. It is about the people who you seek to serve. Moving into the point, I think you had, you'd said earlier, so many people in Nova Scotia have so many points of views on a whole bunch of different things. There's people who have always voted PC. There's people who have always voted liberal. And in your four years, you guys accomplished a lot, including balancing the budget the shipbuilding contract, reducing small business tax, even introducing the first lemon law in Canada, which I found really cool with uh, with with used cars. Uh, but also there was some decisions and any any government and any uh, premier will have these decisions that will have backlash of some kind. Of course, the cat ferry uh, reading recovery program, those were decisions that some people 
didn't feel were right. I just want to know what was the hardest decision during your time, your four years to make? It's probably a hard question. Yeah, it is a very hard question because, um, so I mean, I think you have to set some context. So 2008, in October of 2008, the world financial markets went through a meltdown. And what that meant was that by the time we came into government, uh, the next June of the next year, that stuff was just starting to roll through us, right? We're a small economy, but we knew that over the next couple of years, the the results of the financial collapse was going to have a profound impact on on, on the on the province. So um, we get elected, and two days after we're elected. The World Health Organization declares H1N1 to be a pandemic. So literally two days after we were elected. So you have the financial crisis, and then you have H1N1. And when my Minister of Health is sworn in, as we're coming down off the stage, the Deputy Minister of Health takes her aside to brief her on the H1N1 pandemic, because there are things happening at that point that she might have to respond to immediately. It was a tumultuous time to um, be in uh, in government. You know, you get funding from the federal government, but the funding you get every year in terms of equalization payments are based on estimates. They're called prior year adjustment and we received a very large prior year uh, adjustment in our first year which was going to give us a big surplus in that year but we knew that because of what had happened in the financial collapse that the following years the choices are, <laughs> are not very good you either have to run large deficits or you have to cut program sp- spending or you have to raise taxes Right. Raising taxes were would not have been a popular thing at all during that time. No. And so what we decided to do, and this comes back to the you know, that question of the toughest decision, was to, to do a consultation and to take this out to the people. And we did that. We did consultations all over the province. And so in the end, we decided that uh, what we would do is we would, the, the federal government had reduced the HST by 2%, 1%, I think, in two different years. We said, you know, that's money that the federal government really should have distributed to the provinces. So we're just going to recapture that money, that a portion of the 2% was essentially going to go to income redistribution. So we would take that money, put it into these tax credits, into these programs to lift up these people who would be the poorest people in the province and the money that they would receive would far exceed uh, anything that they would pay in each in in additional HST I would watch the news at night and they would do on they would do streeters and they would be talking to you know kind of low-income people and they would say well I just can't understand the government raising the taxes you know I can't make ends meet as it is now and I'm thinking to myself like you are the, exactly the people. Uh, and, and so that's the, that was the problem. You, you, you know, we were doing what we felt was, you know, the fairest possible thing we could do, but it wasn't um, communicated. I mean, we communicated it. That what would happen is we would say it once, the, the, the press would, would dutifully print it once, but 
after that, it would never get printed again. And you'd say, well, why don't you tell people that they're actually better off? And they'd say, well, we did. We very first day, you know. So it would be, it was frustrating. Um, but, you know, no question, raising the HST was a very difficult, uh, a very difficult decision to be made. And mainly because it was something we didn't want to do. We didn't, you know, we didn't want to raise, uh, raise taxes. And they had asked me before, you know, if, you know, you're going to, are you going to raise taxes? And I, I think, you know, in retrospect, um, uh, was more definite than I should have been. Right. So it's certainly difficult times and things were forced. I'd say your hand would force for certain things. On the flip side of that, is there any decision that you're most proud of, even if it's not one that you necessarily wanted to make? Look, uh, you know, you could go through almost every department in government and you would find um, that we did uh, extraordinary social policy work, whether it was in um, whether it was in community services or healthcare. I mean, we brought in uh, the first collaborative emergency centers. Uh, we did extraordinary work, community services and housing. We built, I think, somewhere in the vicinity of eight or nine hundred long-term care beds. We, we, and this is particularly kind of relevant today because we've seen what hap- has happened in long-term care facilities. Um, we, we built a bunch of brand new facilities. And, uh, and then, of course, the other big focus, and this is still one that I am particularly proud of, is that we decided that we were going to invest in the economy, that, um, that you, uh, as a government, should actually go out and try to bring as many jobs as you can into the province because in the end um, the, the, to, to create employment and give people a reason to stay in your province, young people, that's, that's an important part of the role of government. So yes, we, we worked hard on bringing the shipbuilding uh, contract to, to, uh, to Nova Scotia and we worked with Irving shipyards to make sure that that happened. Uh, people don't might not realize today, but the economic spinoff of that contract is the same as having the Vancouver Olympics every year. During those four years, there were so many uh, different things that your government either did or tried to do to uh, to help Nova Scotians, and we touched on um, healthcare, and we're in probably. One of the biggest healthcare crises is right now. Of course, your government dealt with H1N1, where we have COVID-19 right now. And I want to ask your opinion on this because you're you know the political situations of probably a lot of provinces. You travel a lot with your job now. How do you think Nova Scotia's response to COVID-19 compares to other provinces? Yeah, well, it's, it's a difficult comparison to make because everybody's circumstances is different. So, I mean, I, you see what's going on in Montreal uh, and going on in the province of Quebec, and that's obviously terrible. Um, and in, in large part, it has to do with uh, with long-term care facilities in in uh, those in almost every province, but particularly in Quebec. Uh, what I what I would say is that Dr. Bob Strang, um, our chief medical officer, was my chief medical officer. He had the advantage of having gone through uh, H1N1. Um, he is a very competent and cautious individual. Uh, on some issues, I would often think he was overly cautious, but on this one, I think you know he is displaying, you know. Um, the appropriate level 
of, uh, of caution. Um, I find that the premiers um, and Dr. Strang's communication uh, strategy works well. Um, and of course, there are two there are two parts to every to dealing with these things. You know, one is the actual response, and you know, people should understand that pandemic planning is not something that takes place when a pandemic ha- happens. Pandemic planning is an everyday function of government because you know that it's going to come. You just don't know when. So, uh, so there is the response, and then there's the communication of the response. And I think that in both cases, in this province, there's, there's, they've done a very good job. You know, and you know, none of the provinces have, I, I, I think, been, you know, terrible. I think, uh, you know, Alberta had a tough go at the beginning. Didn't think the communication worked quite as well, mainly because in most provinces, what the premiers did was they put the medical professionals out front, which is what we did in H1N1. We said, no, you know, you don't need to hear from politicians, you need to hear from scientists. Alberta decided, the premier decided that he was going to be out front. And and I, I didn't, you know, I know Jason Kenney, I've known him for a number of years, worked with him um, when I was in government, and he was in government federally. Um, uh, so I'm not, you know, being critical of it. I'm saying I don't think it worked as well. Looking back on your four years, is do you think that your your government sometimes was misunderstood in the media and in in the public's eye? You you mentioned earlier that some people just sometimes didn't get what you guys were trying to do. Do you think that's do you think that's the case? Uh, yeah, well, I uh, I think every government thinks they're misunderstood. Um, I remember one of the things that disappointed me was. One of the very first scrums I did after I was premier, I I, I can't remember what the issue was, but uh, in the scrum I said, well, my opponents will say, and, you know, whatever. And one of the reporters in the scrum said, Mr. Premier, we realize you haven't been at this very long, but they are the opposition. We are your opponent. It it just kind of uh, struck me because... In some ways, that's exactly kind of how it turned out. There was so much uh, going on at the time. News uh, rooms were being stripped of personnel. They didn't really have the time to kind of do in-depth kind of looks at things. And it w- I would find it frustrating because the the way that stories would get structured was we would say something and then the opposition would say something and they would both be treated as if they had equal weight. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes the things that opposite, the opposition was saying just didn't make any sense, right? But they were being treated as if they were somehow valid. And uh, and I, I remember I got so frustrated at one point in time that I actually went down to the press room. And I, I sat in the press room, supposed to talk about energy policy, and explained because, you know, this is another preoccupation of mine. I, I kept files on everything. I read, you know, all the briefing notes that came in. I, I, I studied. I, you know, devoted a lot of time to the decisions that were being made. And when we brought in the renewable energy policy, which, which uh, today I think is, was the right thing to do then, is the right thing to do now. I mean, we, you know, we moved. We moved the province of Nova Scotia from 12% renewables to 26% in four years. 
you know, we were the first ones to put hard caps on greenhouse gas emissions. So I remember I actually went down and sat in the press room uh, to explain what, you know, in detail what our energy policy was and why what the opposition was saying didn't make any sense. Graham Steele was quoted after the loss in 2013 as saying, history will be kinder. You know, after this period of reflection, do you think Nova Scotians are more appreciative of, you know, measures that your government enacted? Well, I'm not even sure they would know which ones were ours or which ones, uh, you know, were somebody else's. I'm not sure. I I, I do know um, that I sleep well at night. I mean, I, I know how hard we worked. I know how hard the, the the people in my cabinet worked. All of them, um, they were they were astounding. They were smart. They were dedicated. Um, um, you know, they were they were just decent, hardworking Nova Scotians. And you know, that's uh, that all kind of means a lot to me. And I uh, I think you know down the road. There, you know, many of these things will continue to, you know, prove their, uh, uh, prove their worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we, set, we did sit around and, and a number of us got together and had a look at a number of the things that we had worked on, and you know, kind of, even if they don't exist today in exactly the same form, you can see where the policy work, because in the end, this is, you know, if it's going to last. It has to be decent policy in order to be sustainable. And uh, I think many of us believe that, uh, you know, if you look at the new, at the immigration program that exists in Nova Scotia today, the, the, the first kind of fully integrated, well thought out immigration program um, we did. Um, it's slightly different now. Goes maybe, I don't know if it goes by a different name, maybe it does. Um, but when we look at that, when I look at that, I see a lot of the of the work that we did in order to make that happen. And like I said, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that if I wanted to, I could go through all the departments and, and find the, the stuff that we worked on and kind of where that work continues to go on. Right. Well, Mr. Premier, uh, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Any plans, do you think, to run again for any office? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I always tell people I... I serve my uh, full sentence. No time off for good behavior. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so uh, I am. Uh, I am very happy to be doing what I'm doing now. And um, I mean, I, I, I wish this COVID nineteen thing would would uh, be resolved with a vaccine. And, yeah. Uh, but for the next little while, I'm going to execute the plan that I had for my garden but never ever got around to today. Well, there you go. <laughs> thank, thank you so much again. I hope to talk to you again sometime and uh, thank you so much. Yeah, take care, guys. Thanks for listening. To find more episodes or to suggest an episode, contact us by going to maritimeicons.ca. You can also find more episodes on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, give us a follow. Maritime Icons is written and produced by Ben Holmes and Nathaniel Brown. Thanks again.